Well, hello, church. This is Pastor Brock, and this is going to be a teaching on our end times session that we had, um, I believe, in the early part of 2007. There were a few teachings up front on that Wednesday session that we had um, that I did not record. So I'm trying to go back and record these sessions that were not uh, placed on CD. And so this will be the very first um, recording, the very first session that we did. And so typically, um, I am recording this in front of our Wednesday night study group. But because I'm going back to hit the ones that I've lost or the ones that I did not record, um, this will just be me talking. So there's no interaction here. I'm just sitting here. Uh, just uh, going over our first session. Uh, so, end time study, very uh, at times touchy subject, but let's try and dive into it as best we can. First off, know that I do not intend on hurting anyone or embarrassing anyone or putting any one person or denomination down. I'm not pronouncing judgment on souls. Um, some of you who may be listening to this come from different backgrounds, different uh, teachings on the subject, and uh, just know that uh, um, I'm not trying to denigrate anyone's belief or former beliefs uh, on this topic. However, I, I do plan on presenting what I and the Church of God movement believe is truth, biblical truth. Um, but at all times, I want to maintain a spirit of unity um, during this study. There are various schools of thought pertaining to the subject of end times, the study of eschatology, and I'm going to approach this topic um, with some of the most popular thoughts in mind today. Some of the teachings we're going to talk about, I too once held. When I first started to hear what I now believe to be truth, I fought it. I even became angry and upset. This is many years ago, but more than anything at the time, as I started to hear teachings that were in opposition to what I believed, uh, there was that struggle inside. Do I hold on to what I wanted to think was truth, or do I really want to know what the Bible says? And for me, I wanted to know the truth. It was more important for me to let go of certain beliefs if they did not line up with God's word than to um, just let my pride win out. So just... Uh, let you know that I, too, have been on a journey with this topic. Um, but before we dive into this topic, there are two things I desperately plead that we do. One is allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into all truth. And secondly, I think it's important that we just use common sense as well. Common sense can be a good guide during a study like this. Have you ever asked yourself the question, how or why did those in Jesus' day reject Jesus as their Messiah? There were multitudes of those who rejected him. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the law like the back of their hand, or so they thought. One reason is because they misunderstood the old prophecies concerning the Messiah and his first coming. They, including the disciples as well, thought that the Messiah would reestablish Israel as a world power. They were expecting the Messiah to show up on the scene 
to conquer their their enemies in the surrounding areas, uh, conquer the Roman Empire, set up David's kingdom again, and sit on David's throne and rule and reign. But they failed to see the life of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Regarding Christ's second coming, is it possible that many today have done the same thing? Misunderstanding exactly what the scriptures say, I believe that is possible, and I believe that's what's happened. The modern-day teachings regarding Christ's return were not always taught. Some of the great reformers of the 16th and 17th century have never adhered to what is being taught today. They never adhere to that. And not just them, but you will not find evidence that even those first believers going all the way back to the first century church adhered to what is being taught today. So what are the, some of the more predominant beliefs regarding Christ's return that are being taught today? First, that all true Christians will soon vanish in the rapture. Then, seven years of apocalyptic terror will overtake those that are left behind, where one sinister man the Antichrist will take over the world. The Antichrist will enter a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem claiming to be God. He will also require everyone to take the mark of the beast, 666. Uh, we could just kind of talk about that for a while, and we have covered that topic, of 666, the mark of the beast, in this study, and it is one of the topics, and, and I believe it's on the podcast as well. You can get a copy of that study. At the end of the seven years, Jesus will uh, come and set up his kingdom for a thousand years, for a millennia. And at the end of the thousand years, there will be a war to end all wars. That is the war um, referred to as the Battle of Armageddon. This is some of the most popular timeline and teachings and events of today's and times uh, theology. The mainstream church is being bombarded with these ideas on the radio, TV, prophecy conferences, books, magazines, movies like the Left Behind movies, seminaries, and the Internet. And it's taught that these events will happen right after another. So our first topic today is this topic of the rapture. And I want to use and look at some of the most popular verses that are used to supposedly support the teaching of the rapture. Now, the word rapture is not found anywhere in the Bible, but we cannot dismiss it based on this alone. So what do we do? We go to the Bible to see if it is supported in the scriptures. Now, just a little side note here, the word trinity is also not found anywhere in the Bible. However, we can see definite biblical evidence to support the concept of the Trinity. So let's do the same with our first topic today, the topic of rapture. So what is this event? It's the belief that when Christ comes again, he will secretively remove all believers from the earth. This belief is so well known that many have already anticipated the newspaper headlines. These are some of the headlines that are reportedly will be given at that time. Quote, multitudes missing. Chaos sweeps the globe. All children have disappeared. 
Now, just on that last one alone, this is a rather disturbing thought. Each child reaches the age of accountability at various times. So will God, if we believe in the rapture, will God take all kids uh, 12 and under? Or how about 10 and under? What is the exact age where God will cut off all children? And do they and do we really believe all children will disappear? This does not seem possible. Common sense is lost with this thought. And then if we believe the opposite, that God will leave the children here, well then how could God leave innocent children here on earth to endure such a horrific time as the seven-year tribulation? Another thought that I had is, what about all the photographs around the world with families and their children? Will the children in those photographs disappear from the photos? Are we to believe that those left behind will not look at their photos and ask, well, where is Bobby or where is Judy? That is a line of thought that uh, always intrigued me. Again, some of the uh, projective newspaper headlines are massive traffic snarls due to evaporated drivers, planes crash, trains wreck as pilots and engineers vanish. There is even a rumor that some executives at a very well-known airline company they have said that they want at least one non-Christian pilot aboard each flight just in case. And again, I ask you to think about that. And does that line up with common sense? And allow the Holy Spirit to lead us as well. First of all, all believers believe that Christ is indeed coming again. The question is, how will he come? Those who adhere to the rapture theory believe that Christ's return will be in the event of a secret, invisible snatching away. The most quoted verse used to support the rapture is found in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. It's here that Paul said believers will someday be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is where the word rapture is taken from. However, does the phrase caught up mean a secret disappearing? Is Paul describing a silent return of Jesus before the seven-year tribulation? As we had said earlier, the evidence will be in Scripture. The proof, so to speak, is in the pudding. So the key to understanding Scripture is to slow down and look at the whole context of the Scripture. And this is what we need to do to break this and other passages down. Uh, so let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. And I'll be reading from the New King James Bible. Here we go. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. If you look at this passage, this is not a silent, secret, invisible event. It's a very loud and visible event. It says that there is a shout a voice, a trumpet. This is one of the noisiest verses in the Bible. 
there is nothing in this scripture that points to the rapture then leading up to the tribulation. The rapture is needed in order to fit into the scheme of today's teaching, but it cannot be found in this passage. Let's, uh, they focus on that word or those two words, caught up. That, that is what the word rapture means. The word rapture means to be caught up. So when they look at this, they believe that uh, the church is going to be caught up. It's going to be raptured away. It's going to be secretively, um, uh, the church will be secretively and invisibly just taken away. It will vanish in, into thin air. But let's look at other um, passages where the concept of taken up is used as well. If we turn to Acts chapter 1, this is talking about the day of Jesus' ascension. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 says this. Now when he had spoken these things, speaking of Jesus, while they watched, don't miss that point there, he was taken up. There's that word, that concept, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. See, Jesus himself was also taken up, but it does not mean he disappeared into thin air. What does this passage say? He disappeared in full view of his disciples. Quote, it says, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. This is a highly visible event. It says Jesus is taken up, and then clouds are mentioned, just like Paul wrote about believers being taken up and caught up in the clouds. And then in the 11th verse here, we see holy angels, probably some rather trustworthy agents, saying that Christ will return in, quote, the same way as you saw him leave. There's no mention here of a secret, invisible snatching away, and one would think that such a major event as the rapture would be mentioned here of all places, but no. Seminary or no seminary, theologian or no theologian, doctor of divinity or not, the angels knew what they were talking about. Let's, can, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians, and let's continue on into chapter 5. This is another passage that is used in the rapture theory. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Let's read that. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Again, let's slow down and understand what this passage is talking about. First, we must all agree that the day here that Jesus comes as a thief in the night is the same day he comes with a shout and with a trumpet blast. See, when the Bible was written, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verses to break, break things down. So we know that 1 Thessalonians 5 is just a continuation of thought as to what was said in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
So based on this line of reason, reasoning, the event described in 1 Thessalonians 5 is the same event as what we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4. When it talks about the thief in the night, let's talk about that. This merely means that Christ will come when you least expect him. Think about it. Thieves normally do not announce their arrival beforehand. They come at night because they do not want you to know when they are coming. This is all that it's trying to say, and the same is with Christ's return. It could happen at any moment. And believers are to be ready for Christ's return. So, but if we continue to look, this is backed up. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5 and continue on with verse 4 through 7. It says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. So this is a passage telling us that we need to be ready uh, when he does come. And that ultimately, if there was one uh, statement that I could say that would summarize this entire teaching from beginning to end, not just in our discussion of rapture, but all the topics that we've covered in this Wednesday night series, it would be the concept of being ready. Whether Christ comes again uh, today in the, when he splits the eastern skies or whether death should claim our lives today, the bottom line is, are you ready? We must be ready. Back to uh, Thessalonians chapter, First Thessalonians chapter five, one through three. So unbelievers will not be ready, and will be caught off guard. That's what this passage is saying. His return will truly be like a thief coming when they least expect him, and they will not be prepared. When it says sudden destruction comes upon them, it's talking about the lost as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. The sudden destruction will come upon them. This refers to the unsaved. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, think about it. If you're not saved and if you're not ready and all of a sudden you see Christ descend in the manner that's been described, do you not think that you would experience something along the lines of a pregnant woman and labor pains? Horror and fear beyond all reason would grip you because you know you have not prepared for his return and that you are not ready. And don't miss uh, this important point in the last half of verse 3 where it says, and there will be no escape. It's a popular teaching within a dispensationalism or premillennialism today that um, when Christ raptures the church, that those who remain are those who are not saved. But, it says, they teach that there will be a second chance. They will have a second chance to accept Christ. That is a dangerous, dangerous teaching because Paul just said here that the unsaved will not get a second chance. It says there will be no escape. Paul said no to this concept when he said they shall not escape in verse 3. So summary of 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 7 could be broken down as such. Jesus Christ will literally descend from heaven with a shout and a trumpet blast. 
the dead in Christ will rise first, and true believers will be caught up, just like Jesus himself was visibly taken up and caught up into the sky. This dramatic day of the Lord will burst upon the unprepared like the unexpected arrival of a midnight thief. And sudden destruction will overwhelm the lost and they shall not escape. So allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us along as well as using common sense, it's easy to see what these passages are talking about and what they're not talking about. Let's go to our next passage that we want to look at. And I'll be turning with you. It's uh, Matthew 24. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 24. I want to start by reading verses 40 through 41. It says, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Left. So another passage that is used from those who uh, support the rapture theory is this passage right here. The concept of one left in the field and one will be taken. Now I want us to first just look at the entire concept of Matthew chapter 24. Um, again, let's look at the entire context. The disciples, if you look at um, the first part of the chapter, the disciples have been wondering about the end of time. They asked Jesus in verse 3, what would be the sign of his coming? Did their question allude to Christ's second coming and the end of time or just one of his comings? They were talking about his second and his next return. Verse 3 says this, Now as he sat on the Mount of, Olives, Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I want us to look at that word coming in verse 3. The Greek word for coming is the word parousia. Parousia, let me spell that, P A R. O-U-S-I-A. Parousia means a highly visible event. It's one that everyone will see. There is nothing secretive about this or about a parousia event. And don't forget this. Uh, This word is very important as you will see. But it's only important if the disciples and if Jesus was referring to his second coming and the end of the the end and the end of the age, which we know they were. Matthew twenty four four says this and Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. The very first thing that Jesus said back to his disciples after they asked him about these things was, well, first off, make sure you're not deceived. Why would this be the very first thing that Jesus would say? It's because Jesus knew that at that time and in the ages to come, there would be much deception. Because he said four times in this passage, in verse 4, verse 5, verse 11, and verse 24, he said, do not be deceived. He also talked about the elect. In verse 24, 
Uh, let's read that. It says, For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. What does this mean? It means that those who truly know the word of God so well that they will not be deceived. The elect are the believers. So, it will be possible, though, for those who are within the faith to learn a false way. I'm not talking about the condition of one's soul here. I'm just simply stating that I believe it is possible to have misplaced doctrinal stances yet still be saved. But we don't want to be in the dark. We don't want to have wrong concepts or wrong doctrinal positions. We want to search for the scriptures to know the whole truth. Jesus is trying to emphasize the overall deception that will occur on this topic. Let's look at Matthew 24, verse 27. Jesus said, it's in red letters here, he said, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. If you'll notice, this mirrors 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. Jesus describes his return as lightning from the east to the west. Now, let's talk about the parousia concept as well. If you'll notice, talks about coming. The same Greek word for coming is used here as it was in verse 3. Verse 27 again, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So there is our parousia effect. This proves that when Jesus returns, his second coming will be visible not some secret snatching away. So we know this passage, verse 24 of Matthew 24, excuse me, verse 27 of Matthew 24, is not talking about a rapture or a secret snatching away. It's talking about his second return that all will see. Look at verses 30 through 31. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming, there's our word, on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Again, descriptive words used to describe his return, all visible. There's no mistaking it. His return will be visible for all the world to see. We know this is talking about the end of time because of how the disciples phrased their question to Jesus in verse 3. And this passage mirrors 1 Thessalonians account, the 1 Thessalonians account as well. In both Matthew and 1 Thessalonians, words such as clouds, noise, loud trumpet, a gathering together, and true believers being transported into the sky, they're all mentioned. Looking at these two passages with common sense and honesty, it's clear what will take place when Christ returns. Let's continue on with Matthew 24 and look at verses 36 through 44, and let's read that. Jesus said, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. 
so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here in this passage, Jesus compared his return to the cataclysmic flood which overwhelmed and destroyed those still remaining during Noah's day. Verse 39 uses the word coming, the same word used in the previous verses. And there's our word and our concept of parousia. Again, proving this will be a visible event. Those in Noah's day saw everything happen. There was nothing secretive about it. And Jesus was trying to compare the two and stating that both events were and will be visible. The typology here that we see with Noah is that Noah was righteous and he was saved. The sinners were lost and destroyed. Today, those saved by the blood of Jesus Christ will be saved, and sinners will be lost and destroyed. In verse 40, where it talks about one will be taken and one will remain, this immediately follows Jesus describing a highly visible event in the flood, being a comparison to his second return. We believe that the one taken will be taken during the time of what was just described because why would Jesus switch gears in the middle of a chapter, in the middle of a thought, and start describing any event such as the rapture? That does not make sense. So this verse and illustration merely signifies the saved from the unsaved and how they will be separated. One will be taken with the Lord and the other left. Matthew chapter 25 and verses 31 through 34. This is another way of describing this separation. The verses again talking about what will happen upon Christ's second return. Um, I believe in chapter 25 is uh, where we talk about the sheep that will be separated. And uh, says when the Son of Man comes in his glory. This is chapter 25 verse 31 now. It says, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And continuing on, down in verse 41, then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So back to Matthew 24. Another aspect to consider is this. Uh, the verses uh, 40 through 41 in chapter 24 says, then two men will be left in the field. One will remain and one will be taken. That concept. If this was truly referring to the rapture, then one would have to take this literally. Would have to literally believe that one's going to be taken and one's going to remain. The one taken would be the saved and the one left here on earth would be the unsaved. This then indicates, again taken literally, 
this then indicates that 50%, exactly 50% of the population would be Christians. Again, believing in the rapture theory, one would have to look at that. Did they use verse 40 and 41 of Matthew chapter 24? They use those two verses to support the theory of rapture. Believing that literally believes that one's going to be taken and one's going to remain. So if that's the case, 50% of the population would be Christians. However, we know what the Bible says. The Bible says in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, few there will be that will make it. Now, I'm not judge and jury. I'm not God, and aren't we all thankful for that? But if you think about this, church, few there will be that will make it. That is a scary concept. That is a scary, scary thought. What does few mean? I don't know. Does few mean 5%, 20%, 40%? We don't know what that means, but I think it's safe to assume that 50% is not few. 50% is much more than few. So, we believe that this passage is not talking about a secret snatching away. Jesus describes his return just like a thief, just like Paul did in 1 Thessalonians 5. If you look Matthew chapter 24 and verses 40, 42 through 44, that is what is described. It's just like a thief as what is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's go to our next passage that is sometimes used to support the rapture theory. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And before we read this, one thing I want to stress is context, context, context. Keep the context in mind. Let's read this passage, obviously a glorious, wonderful passage about Christ's resurrection and how it will affect us and those who have died in the resurrection of the dead. And 1 Corinthians 15:52 says this. Actually, let's start with verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. This is, I said, often, as I said, often used uh, to support rapture theory. But all that Paul was saying here is that on the last day, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then the rest of us will change in an instant. Our sinful, mortal bodies will be changed in an instant. He's, mere stating, he's merely stating how fast, how rapid and quickly this change will take place. And when will this happen? Does Paul say during a secret vanishing of all believers? No. It says, quote, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. Again, lining up beautifully with what 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and Matthew 24, Matthew 24 have already said. There is another concept to all of this that I want us to look at. If we turn to Matthew chapter 13, and let me turn there with you. 
Matthew chapter 13. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. Let's read that together. Another parable he put forth to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the, sow- of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat, uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. In this passage, the wheat is symbolic of believers. The tares symbolic of non-believers. A tear is a Another name for weed is a weed that um, resembles a wheat when it's young, but it will injure and it, cor- it will corrupt the good wheat. When Jesus talks about the harvest, he's talking about his return. So uh, this passage is talking about um, the state of people, the state of believers and unbelievers when Jesus returns. Notice what Jesus said would happen First, when it comes time for the harvest, it says in verse 30, let me read that again. Let both grow, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, here we go. First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barns. They would take the tares and the unbelievers first and burn them. Secondly, they would take the wheat, the believers, to the barn or to heaven. So my main point here is that rapture says that believers are taken and unbelievers stay here on earth. But here, Matthew 13, verse 30 says the opposite. It says, now that the... It says, now... uh, The tares remain. Uh, The rapture theory believes that the tares or the unbelievers will remain for seven years if Jesus said they would be taken and burned first. Let me kind of clarify that. So if rapture theory believes that the believers are raptured out and the unbelievers stay here on earth, Jesus just said the opposite. Jesus just said that when he comes again, that the tares of the unbelievers will be gathered first and they will be destroyed. So this stands in contrast to what is taught within the rapture theory. Jesus verified the meaning of his parable in verses 36 through 43 of Matthew 13. You can read that. So let me just wrap all this up and just give a rapture summary. 
Jesus specifically warned us not to fall prey to false teachings on this subject. He stated that even those within the faith could be led astray. The verses used to support rapture doctrine do not support it at all. The parousia principle can be applied to many of these passages, thus stating when Christ comes back, it will be his second and final return, and his return will be visible and audible for all to see. Those looking for him will not be caught off guard, but those not saved will experience terror and horror of heart and soul. There is no secret snatching away, for Jesus told us, His coming is imminent. It could happen at any moment. And when it happens, it will be in the twinkling of an eye. Our our mortal bodies will be changed, and the end of time will come. And again, the question is, are you ready? Am I ready? So I hope this first study has been helpful. This is the first time I've done this, so excuse some of the little uh, misquotes or uh, the little um, um, mishaps along the way. But hopefully... You can study this. And one thing I just want to say at the end here. Ultimately, you need to study Scripture yourself. Don't take just my word for it. Um, You need to get into the Word and find out what it says and allow the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you into all truth. So uh, make sure you apply that principle. And after this, I believe I will check into our next topic to see what will be covered. And uh, hopefully this has been helpful to you. God bless.